This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. In this episode, we catch up and connect with Matt Wickham, who has a new title with the U.S. Ski Team. He is now referred to and is officially the head coach of the U.S. cross-country ski team. We phoned Matt when he was at his rural cabin in northern Vermont. He is in the process of building a larger dwelling, but for the time being, I believe it, he resides in a 12 by 12, fairly off-grid cabin. We touch a upon a broad scope of topics, including athlete health on the World Cup, team selection for this upcoming season, and how the COVID-19 pandemic may be impacting summer training for some athletes and some contingency plans for racing this upcoming season. Okay, here's the interview. So you have a new title, US Ski Team Head Coach. And which is has ch- changed over the course of years. I think people still associate and think of you as, oh, Matt Wickham, U.S. Ski Team Women's Coach. But that was a few years back with that title. It became World Cup Coach, and now it's Head Coach. So, like, what does that actually mean uh, for you? Yeah, well, uh, I'm very excited. I'm I'm proud to be the head coach, of course, because I I think it means that I get to work with. Uh, these uh, amazing athletes and coaches it's it's such an inspiring environment to be a part of so um, I'm really excited coming out of this last season uh, not just because uh, of the chance for what you could call a promotion uh, but because I had a really enjoyable time this entire last season and I feel like I have struck a balance with um, myself getting enough rest while on the road um, you know, I, I have a girlfriend who lives in Germany, Steffi, and so I'm a, I have a chance to go see her sometimes. And I just had a really great balance of life and it, I think made me a better coach, better person while I was on the road. And I just never was counting the days as I'm not embarrassed to say I have done in the past. It's tough when it's 120 days in a row that you're away from home, uh, in some, some cases more. So but I'm excited. I'm honored uh, to be uh, the head coach of the team, and it's going to be a strange, strange year to have this transition. But uh, I like challenges. So, okay, and we'll get into the strange year thing in a, in a bit. Sure. Um, so, what is the management? What will the management hierarchy look like for you know the U.S. ski team, and at least when it comes to coaching, is someone going to replace you specifically? Um, and let's start there. Yeah. Yeah, well, somehow through all this, Grover still remains my boss. Um, so that's actually great. Uh, he's the cross-country director, which uh, we've actually created into – that has become a more important position on our team over the last couple of years. This last year, uh, he was actually the cross-country director, and we didn't have a head coach technically. Um, so what is very exciting for me is that I continue to get to work with Grover um, because he is – the logistical mastermind. He's a fantastic coach and friend as well. Uh, but the team really needs him and I really need him to be able to do my job as a coach to have that stability, uh, as well as good humor and, uh, light spirit uh, that he brings. So, uh, it's Chris has cross country director. I'll be head coach. Uh, Jason is world cup coach. Uh, this is Jason Cork. He's also Jesse Diggins, uh, wax tech and coach. 
And so he spends a lot of time working with Jesse uh, on both training and workouts and on her skis. Uh, but he does so much more than that for the team. Um, he is our, our, our researcher, our speed reader, the guy that can remember every detail. Uh, he's continually uh, stimulating the level of education on our coaching staff and uh, it just has become a great friend. Um, and so his involvement in the wax room, for instance, isn't just waxing Jesse's skis. He's one of the main guys working on kick and glide. And so uh, he is keeping us essentially on schedule in the truck and really providing this quiet, very detailed leadership. The three of us, Chris, Jason, and myself, think we all bring something very different to the table. And I really see those two uh, as important teammates of mine. Um, then you have Brian Fish, who for a long time has been the head development coach. And <clears throat> he uh, uh, has transitioned into domestic programs manager. And so he's more focused on what happens on U.S. soil, super tour membership and uh, homologation, uh, coaches education. There's just it's such an enormous job uh, fish burns the candle at both ends and then we have a d team coach which uh, position anyways um which bernie held last year and unfortunately she uh has gone back to nursing school she put in an awesome year for us um is leaving on great terms with all the athletes and all the coaches we're really going to miss her but um it just wasn't a great fit lifestyle wise everything else was perfect about it except right. it was just hard to uh, find that balance and it's a funky job like that you're hard on the road and then you're hard at home and and it's really difficult to make a to plug back into your uh, life at home sometimes when you've been away for three weeks or four weeks the world has kind of gone by a little bit so it's uh okay. it's yeah anyways so yeah so so essentially it's that you know that those the four core individuals that you guys have been there for for quite some time you'll be hiring a new development coach it sounds like um but you will not have for example a specific okay here's the women's coach and here's the men's coach there'll be sort of cross-pollination if you will amongst all the coaches and working with multiple athletes that's right yep and you know it for a while it seemed to me like it was a mistake. I personally really enjoyed being the women's coach because it gave me some clarity of uh, job role. Um, but we, we never were able to piece, to, to piece it together so that we also had a men's coach. Um, and the complicated thing is that, you know, with Jason, we could put him as the men's coach, but he is also Jesse's coach and her wax techs. And that takes a lot of time. Uh, and we just found that on our team, with this current structure, it doesn't work to have Grover as one of the gender coaches or Chris or um, Jason as one of them. Um, it, it just doesn't fit with our roles. And so we're, we are trying our own style. And I mean, I suppose, and oftentimes, you know, with super tour leaders, I mean, every once in a while, there'll be a coach over from one of the main club teams supporting athletes as well. We see uh, many club coaches and what you could call them as our key partner club our key partner coaches, I suppose, um, who have athletes on their team that are also on the national team. 
And so we'll see Peppa, Flora, Pat, Chris Mallory, uh, Nick Brown, Dylan Watts, uh, different Jack Novak, different uh, coaches and tech combos that come over to help provide additional resources. And what's really cool about this system is that uh, these coaches, they may come from Stratton or from Sun Valley or Alaska. Uh, they have learned to plug in as a coach and resource to everybody. Uh, they're not just there for their one or two athletes that they represent, but it's uh, it's become uh, a very smooth running system, and we look forward to having these coaches uh, come and strengthen our infrastructure on the World Cup. What are some of the initiatives where you folks are trying to get more women at the upper echelon of kind of U.S. ski team coaching hierarchy or wax tech hierarchy, for that matter? Yeah, good question. Uh, and uh, one is that the person that we just hired to replace Bernie uh, is also a woman. And uh, I'm at liberty to say that, though uh, she hasn't made the announcement to her team. Uh, we haven't to our team yet. And so I can't give the name, but I can uh, tell you that we have just hired uh, a fantastic coach to be our D team coach. I'm really excited awesome. about this. Beyond that, <clears throat> the intent is there, uh, but the intent and the action can be different things. And so we're trying to make sure it goes ju beyond just uh, having one coach and uh, being able to check that off the list. Uh, so we have something called the Hooray, which is a foundation uh, that supports women in sports, uh, and they sponsor a coaching internship. It's a female coach fellowship. I'm I'm losing the actual name of it right now, but we've been running it for two years. Sure. It's sponsored yep. by Hooray, uh, H-E-R-R-A-Y with an exclamation point. And uh, essentially we have two or three coaches to our fall camp each year. And uh, I think what started as a little bit of an internship, uh, pick up uh, some people to shadow us. Uh, in the first year, we realized that maybe we mismanagement, mismanaged it or didn't uh, run it as well as we could have. And last year, uh, we really took these uh, intern coaches, call them what you will, and just threw them right in and made them coach. Uh, so whether it was videoing or giving Sophie tips on what she thought of her last sprint round. Uh, and I think we've we're strengthening that program and we look to continue to run that and strengthen it where we can. Uh, those are the two main initiatives right now. You know, I think, well, even prior to the pandemic, you know, th there seemed to be a little bit of a financial crunch amongst some teams. And then, you know, I'd have to go look at my timeline, but it almost seemed like concurrent when this pandemic started blowing up was that the Norwegian team or the Norwegian Ski Federation was was implementing some pretty drastic cuts due to a lack of financial resources. So they cut some staff. It sounds like they're going to cut some positions from their ski team. And so you think, gosh, if the most well-funded team on the planet when it comes to cross-country skiing is making cuts, it's got to pretend something somewhat negative for the rest of the world Um on the cross country scene. So, you know, do you see a reduction in funding for this year or possibly the next season and how might that actually play out? Yeah. It's, 
it's an interesting time for sure. And uh, we are feeling good about our budget right now. Um, we've sat in on a number of calls with Tiger and Brooke McCaffrey, our uh, chief financial officer. And uh, there is uh, quite a significant effort to maintain athletic funding as well as staff positions. And there's just been an impressive level of transparency coming from the leadership. So I'm really thankful for that. That doesn't mean it won't all come crashing down and jobs will, uh, will need to fur furlough people. And, uh, but right now it is looking pretty good. And for us, uh, we have the added layer of security that we get our entire team's funding uh, from the Davis Family Foundation. And so you'll see in places now, it's the, uh, the Davis Cross Country National Team. Uh, it's written on the back of our wax truck in, in Europe. And, and so this is uh, an incredible layer of stability that we have. Uh, and we feel like we can count on it through next year, at least. And so uh, we're very fortunate for the generosity by the Davis family. Uh, they're not just uh, generous with their money, they're incredibly interested in our team. And so uh, we're often getting emails uh, from them after a tough weekend or a great weekend, just saying, hang in there or congrats. And uh, we really feel supported on many levels. And that feels good in the spring to not be stressing about funds because a large part of my uh, coaching career on the ski team has been springtime stressing about funds, but uh, uh, Tiger has has really done a great job of uh, trying to improve athletic funding, and and so is that. And that it's interesting because when I I I saw that come across, you know, the Davis cross country team recently in a press release. And I had already heard that there was going to be, you know, a foundation or a family helping fund a large portion of this of the team's budget. But then I went back and looked at a press release from last season, and I think it was also sort of, you know, the Davis cross country team was interspersed in these press releases a bit. I just wasn't probably being careful enough to look at it. But is this um, is the foundation based in like Maine or Maryland? Is that an East Coast? Based foundation. Ooh, that's a great question. Uh, I know when we send postcards, they go to New York City. Um, okay, I'm not sure. I should know that. That's okay. What does that actually look like for athletes? So traditionally, a team members, and again, this is like, please correct me, but a team members are fully fully funded. Some of those a team members, like Jesse Diggins, would be a reg group athlete, meaning they fall within the top 15. I think in either discipline, top 15 for sprint or distance, and they get, you know, stipends for food and travel. All good so far? Yeah, essentially. We don't hand them stipends. We just pay for their room and board while they're on the road. And so I'm making the assumption, again, A-team athletes are fully funded. They don't really have to think about, like, okay, I need to derive $130 per day on the World Cup and hand that over. B-team athletes, it's a different situation. Can you explain how that what does that look like for this upcoming year in terms of financial support? Yeah, absolutely. Historically, uh, what you said is true until last year, actually, where the, the B team also fell under a very similar layer of funding or level of funding as the A team. And so for this season, we're going into the second year 
uh, running of having fully funded A and B teams. And so um, I, I'm not at liberty to discuss yet who has been nominated to the team because that'll be released here pretty soon. But uh, we will have uh, seven athletes on the A team and five on the B team to give you an idea of uh, kind of the, how much funding goes into all right, so there'll be 12, 12 folks on on the team. That's on the A. That's on the A and B team. Then we also have the D team. Yep. Uh, that will have an additional okay. eleven athletes. And D team, D team structure or funding is a little bit different. I mean, that is not a fully funded position, um, as I understand it. Do you, I mean, do we want to? Yeah, that's right, and that's where um, we do our best to uh, push. Uh, Access to the D team, for instance, at camps, uh, we were able to reduce camp costs to uh, virtually zero last year for D team athletes. Um, but largely, they are funded uh, by the National Nordic Foundation, uh, who is not specifically tasked with funding the D team. Uh, they are more tasked with funding development, and so those athletes happen to fall under both, and they are often compensated for world juniors under 23 uh any world cup starts they may get are subsidized or paid in full and so uh it takes some work uh to get this funding when you are not on the a or b team it's it's a stress and it's a reality but uh, i think a lot of nations at least on their development program experience the same thing and so i think we've gotten good at knowing some scholarship programs that athletes regularly apply to. Um, you know, one of our main jobs in at certain times of the year becomes writing letters of recommendation uh, for athletes that are applying for grants. And um, athletes figure it out. It's, uh, it's where it's quite a different landscape than it was 10 years ago. The amount of community support for skiers and teams is really remarkable. We hope to keep that going through these tough times. So you guys aren't necessarily at this point trying to think, okay, where are we going to have to trim budget here or there due to, and we can get into like what the season may or may not look like next year, but not trimming the budget yet because you're foreseeing, uh, yeah, finance. I mean, let, I mean, the stock market's down or things like that. And people tend to donate less when they look at their, you know, their IRA or their Roth account or whatever it is. And they're like, man, I just took a 20% hit. None of that yet. Yeah. We are, we are currently planning for the best and we are uh, prepared for the worst uh, and everything in between. I am not a doomsday guy, but this is uh, I'm a realistic guy. And this, this could mean, uh, that a large part of the World Cup season doesn't happen uh, could mean that none of it happens and we have to rely on uh, skiing domestically uh, and even more granular than that, perhaps regionally. Uh, we'll, we'll be talking about that and have been talking about the possibilities that could unfold um, because I think it's ignorant not to. I don't consider myself an alarmist. I personally think we're going to see some World Cup racing this season, but uh, we'll need to be ready for everything. And I think it's uh, it makes the hard work that the clubs have put in over the last however many years um, 
so worth it because athletes who are not able to go to national team camps um, and train with national level and world-class athletes can stay home and, and do that in many cases. So uh, we're positioned pretty well as a nation to uh, float through some very difficult times or abbreviated calendars because our clubs are so strong. And this is something, I mean, it's obviously on my radar. Will there be a World Cup or will there not be a World Cup? But I sort of try and manage my own resources. I'm like, okay, I'm not moving into that realm until, you know, the FIS cross-country you know, committee has had like an, I'm sure they're chatting, but had an official meeting, which I'm assuming will go down at some point in March or in May. So, but I'm assuming that you guys are all brainstorming, as you mentioned, about like, uh, possible scenarios. Um, but you answered that. Okay. We do have backup plans for, for instance, our camp schedule for this season involves, uh, two park city camps, one at the end of June and one in October. And, uh, of course, uh, now that it's been a couple of weeks since our planning, uh, June is even then was seeming too soon. And so we, uh, have a backup date set for that one, which is the last couple of weeks of July. And if that backup date doesn't happen, that camp gets lost. And this is sort of a rhetorical question because I feel like I know the answer, but maybe not. So if you're having a camp, say, at the end of July and you're bringing in athletes that are dispersed throughout, you know, the East Coast all the way to Alaska, um, would the recommendation be that, okay, uh, Rosie Brennan, who I, I don't know if she's in Park City or Alaska, but let's say it's someone in Alaska, Sadie. Okay, Sadie, you have two weeks of self-quarantine, no contact beyond, say, your husband. That's right. it. Before you head to a camp, would it be as fastidious as that before an athlete would travel? I think if we were uh, – first of all, we're going to follow CDC guidelines and uh, guidelines right. from our team doctors. Uh, and But more than that, we're also going to uh, follow our, our gut and just – kind of a good conscience if they say we can travel but it is still very clearly uh hazardous we're we're not going to do that and so it's going to have to be uh very safe for us to be traveling and very socially responsible it's not we're not just worried for ourselves we're worried about being the the conduit for other people to get sick and uh we'll play it conservatively at least through this summer and then um We'll see. We'll just take it step by step and process news as we get it. It's a it's a fairly binary thing for me, though. It's like it's either safe or it isn't. And right now it isn't. I remember flying into Pyeongchang. I was on a flight with it was a late flight with a bunch of jumping teams and I was the only person without a mask on. And I'm like, OK, I've got something wrong here. Um, OK. So that's, that's actually, Jason, that's actually an interesting thing that has changed. Um, I can think of a, a time when Keegan and Liz both wore masks, uh, traveling from one venue to the next because they had been roommates and Liz was sick and we had to bring them to the next place and they didn't want to get other people sick. And I remember being very impressed that they wore masks, on in our team vans and then on the airplanes. And I think that's just going to be the norm for moving sure. forward. Even when things open up, people are going to be masked up and it's, you know, you're not going to look at those people like 
I see a mass coming towards me three months ago and I give it a 15 yard birth. Right. And, uh, but now it's, it's all masks. So, well, and I want to jump to a question here. Yeah. About, you, you know, just training through this season and you've talked about different scenarios. And again, like, I feel like it's super premature for me to report on like, will there be a world cup or not? sounds like you guys are running through all these different contingencies in terms of whether it's a domestic situation, a piecemeal World Cup, or even the possibility of a full-blown World Cup, which I'm assuming would have to look a lot different in terms of international travel. And, you know, once you're in the EU uh, and, you know, moving from border to border and what the limitations are. So that could be a big wormhole. But what's the sense that you get right now on, you know, and quote, kind of training through this season? Uh, next season was supposed to be a world champ season. Uh, and then the Olympics in 22. You know, what are you guys talking a little bit about in terms of those scenarios and how then specific, specifically the training may or may not look? And we're kind of at the onset of a new training season in a couple of weeks. Yeah. In fact, the first day of the training season is often the, the week that includes May 1st. Um, so that is this coming Monday, uh, which is an exciting time of the year. Uh, we haven't gotten too specific about uh, planning for what does happen if we are just domestic all winter or uh, if things are uh, just truncated uh, somewhat or dramatically. We haven't really gotten into that, but uh, that's where the clubs come back into the conversation. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's, uh, first of all, it's a great opportunity to try something different and to uh, have a year of more focused on training and less interrupted by racing. But at the same time, uh, the year that we would be doing that is still the year before the Olympics, which we uh, are going to plan on attending and winning. <laughs> and so to do that next year, even if athletes are limited to races at home, what we do is racing. And so uh, what we will be doing is racing. That'll be really important for connecting this year with next. But like I said, I, I don't want to, <clears throat> I don't know anything that other people don't. We're just, uh, I, I'm planning to race in Europe and we'll make our schedule and our calendaring, uh, such that major changes will be simple and we'll just go to plan B and plan C. I am curious, this is just, and I don't have this written down, but just specifically drilling down on training. I mean, some people would consider that the Beijing venue, which is actually north of Beijing by many, many hours, I believe, is a little bit, would be considered, you know, under fist standards, a higher altitude um, venue. Would you guys, even in the best of circumstances, start incorporating kind of like an altitude training model or racing at altitude model, um, you know, starting this season? Uh, yes, and we are, uh, which is which is why Park City fits in really well for two reasons. We need a simple schedule, so uh, changes that we need to make are uh, low impact, and Park City allows us that. But we were going to go to Park City twice anyways because we want to start uh, having altitude for these next two years be a big part of our training plan. And we had moved away from it deliberately these last couple of seasons, not entirely, 
because it's important to have fluctuations in your programming and try new things. But these next couple of seasons, we'll be doing quite a bit of skiing and uh, pacing work and intensity work down at Soldier Hollow and uh, having more altitude camps in places like Davos and Sizeralm, Italy, uh, instead of Seyfeld or uh, other places, uh, or Ramsau, places that are only three, 4,000 feet. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, this next question having to do with holistic health for athletes. And we saw on the World Cup this last season that two very high-profile athletes, one who's you know still a junior, or a U23 athlete, I believe, is Frida Carlson from Sweden, who is also, you know, she's won world championship medals already. And Ingvild Osberg from Norway. Both of them had some limited action early on in the season due to, you know, like what the media reports were, um, that they were, you know, failure to kind of meet some health benchmarks that the team had established. And I, I think specifically I have this right, like, like certain bone density benchmarks. And Carlson sat out much of the season and she came back and had a, a great race and won home and colon, perhaps kind of the best race of the year, um, you know, from a viewing standpoint. Absolutely. Osberg uh, came back, skied strong. She ended up, uh, I believe, had a stress fracture, you know, broke her, her foot. Right. And ended her season short. And, you know, like the, the back talk or the talk I hear is like, okay, she came back too early. Clearly her bone density was still compromised. But again, that's not substantiated. I'm just trying to be transparent in terms of like some leaps that people may or may not make once they're seeing that. I mean, again, accidents could happen to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but it raises the question about what are te- what are different different national teams doing to monitor kind of the longitudinal health of their athletes? Not simply like, okay, here's their hematocrit level. They're looking great after this altitude camp. But things like, say, bone density, which, you know, from what I understand, can be an indicator of many, many different things, in particular, an adverse, things in particular in female athletes, but I, I bring up female athletes, but I think, you know, let's be real. It could, could apply to both genders. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So how did you guys take that news perhaps? And like, what are you doing as a team to kind of implement protocol to make sure that, you know, an athlete who's burning it on both ends of the candle is also just maintaining basic metrics of health? Yeah, uh, it's a man. That's a big topic. I'll I'll try and I know I'm sorry. I'll try and condense it a little bit. Um, first of all, it was I think it was important for both Sweden and Norway to make the moves that they did. Uh, it broke my heart that the two athletes had to be in the public spotlight regarding their what are very personal issues. And mm-hmm. uh, what's tough about that is that you know these aren't the only two athletes on the planet that are struggling uh with body composition with health i don't even know specifically what exactly each of them had going on um but i do know uh they were the two that really uh kind of took the public heat for it and that was tough and i was really happy when they came back to the world cup uh that they were 
smiling and felt included. And uh, that for me was really encouraging. Um, so then uh, the next question is, what are we doing about it? And we spent some time talking with the high performance director at the USOPC, Susie Parker Simmons, who has been our long time uh, for perhaps 15 years, uh, our dietitian. And so she's, she's continuing to work with our veteran athletes, even though she's moved into uh, one of the executive roles at the USOPC. And uh, we feel personally as coaches that we've had these measures in place, these safety measures. And the measure is simply not, uh, okay, let's pull this athlete from competition. It's, it's more, let's, let's make sure that we are providing the resources so that every athlete on the team, uh, men and women, have access to proper nutrition, uh, body composition resources, strength training, psychology that can be clinical or sports psych, Let's make sure we build a robust medical set of resources um, around them. That way, we can try and catch uh, major things from happening uh, before they do. And uh, would we pull an athlete from competition? Uh, yeah, of course, I, I am certain that we would. Um, would we make a big deal out of it publicly? No way. Um, we would do our best to keep things very... Uh, uh, professional like we do with any medical issue um, and so we'll continue every year to uh, do body composition tests on athletes to have uh, both psychology and dietitian resources available which uh, includes uh, consultation uh, it used to be on the team when I first started if you were going to see uh, Susie at a camp it was like oh wow you must have a problem. Something's going on. And now when Susie is at our camps, every athlete on the team, all the men, all the women, schedule a consultation with her because this is nutrition. It's not uh, limited, limited to just people who have uh, challenges with it, body image issues or eating disorders. Uh, it's, it's so much broader than that. And I think that shift on our team has been really healthy. Okay. So you don't necessarily have like, okay, each athlete's getting tested two times a month for whatever you're testing for. Like, again, a health committee would have to come up with those parameters or benchmarks, but that's not necessarily part of the method currently. Well, um, it is not with that much frequency. We test uh, at two of our training camps, uh, in the summer and fall, and then historically once in the winter. And this winter, we have it scheduled for twice in the winter. It's it's difficult to do it more than that. Uh, it's also um, not so healthy to just be testing all the time. You know, we don't we don't carry scales around. Uh, we also don't have our coaches involved in nutrition programs. Uh, we. We stay out of that. We try and rely on the professionals. Um, and I think coaching is one of those areas where uh, we can make the mistake of acting as the expert in everything because it's sort of a job that does everything. It waxes. Uh, you provide physiology and dietitian information and, and uh, training and psychology. But 
it can be really harmful if you if you don't know when to say ah i don't know the answer um or the answer shouldn't be coming from me and so nutrition dietitian stuff really important for us on our team that we uh, as coaches stay out of it and just provide the uh, the resources so here's a question uh, and it's sort of talking about like i think you referenced like you guys you know if you had to pull an athlete from competition you would be really private about it which you know i understand if it's a it it, it is a you know private health issue right and there's all these hipaa laws and so forth but at the same time you know athletes are role models for many many athletes and it's you know I'm, i'll just say like you know it's informative to know oh if i see a bump in someone's performance maybe you know what's the causation there harder training loss of 20 pounds who knows right it could be lots of different things so you know as a head coach how do you balance that messaging right because i mean i i will and i i may perhaps this is personal but i also think like holistically one of the great things that has come out of the track and field mess in in particular the horrible stuff that like salazar imposed on some athletes and it's it certainly seems to be corroborated um is that you know women are coming out female athletes come, have come out and discuss like okay here's what i was going through here are some of the protocols yeah i was starving all the time i may have been meeting my prs early on but you know it was unsustainable so how does you know or maybe that isn't your part of the mandate but just informing the public and like you skiers like yeah this is an issue and look like jesse's been a spokesperson for this like it happened to her mm -hmm. right balancing being hyper private by also being like look this is happening and as a community we need to be careful of this yeah that's absolutely um well that's a tough <laughs> tough question to answer uh you know one of the answers is i think you you leave it to the athlete to decide uh whether or not they want to go public in a blog or vlog or in a book as jesse did and everybody should read jesse's book um because it's incredibly honest and it and it shows w what else is happening in the world out there uh maybe everything that happens in your brain uh, isn't exactly what happens in other people's brains and uh but i think uh, you've seen some other athletes um Catherine ogden had an incredible blog after her tour to ski last year so just yeah. five months ago um, which should be reread by everybody. And, and that's a great example of athletes uh, being empowered to be role models themselves. When uh, long ago, several years ago, Jesse wasn't ready. And I'm sure Catherine wasn't ready uh, before that. And giving the, or <laughs> ensuring that the athlete has agency and control over um, their story, I think is really important. We would never run that as a team. Uh, to me, the sure. important message that uh, I would hope people hear is that we take athlete health very seriously. And uh, we are not team-wide saying everybody has to be lean and mean for this particular event. We are leaving that to the athlete and uh, the professional. So in this case, Susie Parker-Simmons. And uh, if they want to add muscle mass they can if they want to 
get lean with Susie, they can. Uh, but it's all going to be within the framework of a uh, healthy human body. On to the next question, uh, or a series of questions having to do with the U.S. men. And, you know, thinking of like the bright side, there's obviously a whole kind of cadre of very fast young men in the U.S. And, you know, and there's many of them. There's, there's, there's four, obviously, that come to mind who have won the relay, the four by five relay at World Juniors the past two years, but there are others in the pipeline. And we don't need to kind of like run through the whole list of names, but it's been pretty well publicized, deservedly, that there's a, a young crew of folks coming up. Additionally, and I think, you know, I'll, I'll, you can tell me whether or not you agree with this statement or not, but like longitudinally, there's been awesome performances by U.S. men over the past 15 years, you know, whether it was Noah Hoffman or highlighted by, you know, Chris Freeman coming in fourth twice at world championships, Simi doing amazingly in sprints, Eric Bjornsson. I mean, we could go on and on, but collectively it's been a tough go. So what's your vision for the next five years or so for U.S. men's skiing? That's a great question. It's incredibly exciting to have such a success happening at uh, the junior level and to have some of those athletes uh, advancing up the ranks, one this year onto the B team, a uh, couple onto the A team is, is very exciting. And <clears throat> But there's a, there's a big difference between being a top 10 skier or a medalist at World Juniors and converting that to top 10s and medals on the World Cup. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not a gimme. Um, but what the data does show us is the athletes that have approximately top 10 results at World Juniors, and that can have a little bit of leeway. Um, we've, we've run now 10 or 15 years of data on our current national team uh, to see how things progress. And that is the benchmark that seems to be required um, to have World Cup success or Olympic or World Championship success. Uh, with that, you have exceptions like Holly Brooks, who never went to World Juniors and is a World Cup medalist or podium skier. So um, you're not you're not out of luck if you if you didn't get into the top ten or top twelve or on the podium at World Juniors. But for me, it's really exciting that we've got these four guys and a few others coming up through the pipeline, as well as a whole bunch of women. Um, but it's not just going to be about them. It's also going to be about who can they really quickly inspire to hop in their footsteps because they're coming through for a reason. At one point, they were inspired by someone. And that might have been by Chris or Noah or Simi or um, Eric. Could have been by uh, could have been an inspiration from someone from a different team. But this group that we have coming through are are very exceptional, not just in terms of their results, but their character. They're funny. <laughs> they're funny kids, but they're very humble. They're quick to make fun of themselves, and I think it is going to create an environment that pulls more along with them. And that's why these guys are special. And that's why I'm excited for it. Um, they're going to be fun to be around and it's going to recruit for us. So the vision okay. simply so, yeah. for no, these I'm, next yeah. five years is to get our best guys together wherever it is as much as possible. 
because I really don't believe in the program of training by oneself for the entire prep period and expecting to do well in the winter. I think uh, that caters to certain personalities uh, and it's important to have a lot of solo time, particularly for some, but at some point you have to have aggressive competition. And so we're going to need to be getting uh, all of our men together more. And in the past, we've had kind of a spotty distribution of where the best men were, where uh, in Stratton, you had Sophie and Jesse training together. Uh, you had Keegan and Sadie and Rosie all training together up in Alaska. And so the chance for improving is there for those athletes that are training with people who are better than them. But if you're, doesn't matter how talented you are, how smart your training plan and your recovery is, if you're not being pushed with some sort of regularity, it's hard to maximize what you can do. So we have to get together. The camps are, uh, if anything else, designed for that. Okay, so here's a, just drilling down this a little bit. Uh, and we've had three notable you know athletes male athletes retire um this season you know and and from a points perspective we're talking about you know domestically two two of the top skiers in the country when it comes to distance so Kyle Bratwood retired Eric Bjornsson retired Ben Lusgarden retired right. but once these key, once these individuals are identified and and I wrote down specifically like Patty Caldwell mm-hmm. he came to mind because it's like you know, he essentially was in his prime. He, I remember the year, I think it was 2017, 2018 tour to ski. He skied the whole tour to ski, which may or may not have been a wise decision, but he ended up and made the Olympics, did not race in Pyeongchang, retired. Um, And what have you, you know, what have you learned or thought about when it, and you, and you saw the trajectory of like Noah Hoffman, Chris Freeman, and maybe Chris is an exception, but you saw the trajectory of Noah. You saw the trajectory uh, of Patty Caldwell. And I'm sure these young guys are thinking, how is it going to be different for me? Sure. Maybe my world junior and U- U23 results are a notch better than those guys, perhaps. But how is my trajectory going to be a little bit different? Yeah, that's up to them. Uh, you know, the the team, uh, the women's team that... Um, you know, I'm tired of talking about. Frankly, <laughs> leave that in there. They, yeah, but notice I haven't really, out, I haven't really <laughs> yeah, asked job. about the women's team. I, you know, I love them all, but it, it's, uh, you know, it, it it was exhausting to talk about, and it was also exhausting to take credit for as the women's coach because this was something that they largely built, and uh, just like how uh, you know Brian Fish should get a lot of credit for this, but has uh, taken so much credit for uh Catherine and hannah and Haley and julia having the success that they are having when i can remember perhaps brian catalyzed it but i can remember emails going back and forth between these women about getting together for camps and building it themselves and so it's something that the athletes are in control of and you can wait all day long for the most magical coach to come along and make it for you, uh, but they're not going to do it. Coach isn't going to do it. It's going to be uh, driven by the athletes, and the coach can catalyze it, and that will be uh, 
a goal of ours as a team. And as we work with this new D team coach, that will be the puzzle this year too, when we can't travel uh, and meet up just yet. How do you uh, instill that sense of team? Some of these athletes are new to the team for the first time. And so we have some strategies in place uh, that, we'll, that we can talk about them. But um, yeah, it's going to be, I think, sure. frankly, I think the athletes that are coming along understand that they have a huge responsibility to build this team. And it's not that, <laughs> it's not that the athletes uh, who are part of the men's team for years failed. It often takes also the right cards to make a great hand. And if you, if you don't have enough of these great athletes training in the same place, that can be, that can be tricky to make much progress. And there's, it's not to take anything away from the work that these guys put in, uh, not just to their own training, but these guys put in work to create a team as well. It's, uh, it's harder to build. You can't just say, yep, we're doing it and have it happen. Well, you, you do have the gift of the card of geographic proximity in some respects, because a lot of them are from the great state of Alaska. That's right. Yep. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so- <laughs> Not a you know tough place to get to and get away from in some respects. So there, right. a lot of them are concentrated there, which is good. We had a conversation early winter. I, I forget, and you know we were, you had texted me. You're like, I think you need to ask me harder questions. Do you remember that? Yeah, okay. yeah. And I think one of the is this thing, one coming. What's that? <laughs> is this one coming? <laughs> okay, so but I think one of the things you you noted it's like. You know, and again, you can correct me. I don't know if I still have this text, but something like, why have we had a tough time developing male athletes? I don't know if it's exactly what you said, but I feel like that was kind of the tone of it. Yeah, that's fair. Um, it's hard. Statistically, I think this would prove out that it's harder to make a top 30 on the men's side than it is statistically on the women's side. So um, what does developing a top athlete look like you know if you're not comparing apples to apples it's a little bit of apples to oranges but do you feel like you guys have had a tough time developing male athletes when it comes to you know and you guys are pretty public about this about medals championship medals yeah i think we've had i think we've struggled and um there are only so many athletes (laughs) uh skiing at the World Cup level for both men and women in all of these nations, uh, with the exception of Norway, of course, and and Russia. But I don't think uh, anybody would disagree with me that if we had all of those men that you had listed training together in a club for 10 years with access to plenty of solo training time, uh, that they couldn't have gotten considerably better. I think they would have. And I think we simply didn't have enough group training, enough teamwork. Um, I just think we could have done a better job of getting our best men together. But you only have a few skiing at that level. Uh, and so and we have a country that takes six hours to fly across. So it's tricky. That's where these. That's where these clubs, uh, the development of these clubs is is really coming up big. Where you have uh, more than just one great athlete of each gender training in it. You have multiple Olympians. You have Olympic medalists. You have 
many people who have been in the World Cup top 10 training on some of these teams. And that's a good way to get better. Okay, so this gets a little bit into, you know, if we're, we want to talk about specific US ski team or not if we want to, but we're not going to discuss, I mean, you know, I, I've heard a little bit about who, who may or may not have been nominated to the team, but APU, and they always seem to be quick to the gun when they post their stuff. Um, you know, APU posted, you know, the athletes from their club that had made the team and one person who is an APU skier who skied, I think the entire duration of this season on the World Cup was David Norris. And David Norris was obviously not on that list. So he he did not make the team. And kind of going over the the, the specifics, I think David is 29, and I think he had to have a world rank of 40th, either on the distance or sprint uh, uh, on the eighth list that was released in March. Distance or sprint, he had to be ranked 40th, and he was he was ranked 43rd in distance. He came close, and arguably, you know, I I feel pretty comfortable saying this, although I don't think David raced at all domestically last season. Arguably, the best. U.S. skier last year, outside of a few sprinters, um, he came close but did not meet the objective criteria. Can you talk a little bit about about his situation? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a bummer. It's um it's an interesting question and hopefully with some interesting answers. Um, you know, we all want David on the team. He's uh, a really special guy. He's a great team player. He's incredibly funny, and he's wicked fast. And so. There's nobody uh, in the U.S. skiing community, uh, much less on the national team coaching staff, that doesn't want David on the team. But the criteria is designed to capture and project potential future World Cup, World Championship, and Olympic podium skiers. And uh, while I believe in David 100%, and I think that he could improve to the point where he can get into the top 10. He's been 16th before. Uh, and once you're in the top 10, the medals are much closer than they were when you were in the you know, 27th, 24th, 16th. I believe in David, and I think he can do that. But right now, the criteria doesn't capture him. And it doesn't project him to be on track to win those medals. And... It's hard to argue that it's not a bummer. We'd love him on the team. But it's also hard to argue that uh, he is, in fact, on track to win medals. Now, uh, that is based on what he has accomplished so far. This next year, he could get on track to win medals. And if he does that, the criteria will capture him. And so that's, I mean, I, I, look, I'm trying to be as, uh, just sort of straight with that answer as I can. It's, uh, it's much more emotional, uh, for me and these other coaches, uh, than that answer comes off. I Um, understand that. But what I look forward to is talking with David because he and I have a good relationship. Um, David was, uh, a pleasure to have on the world cup all season. And once an athlete's on the world cup, I mean, 
they're, you're basically on the national team. You know, this is this is not U.S. skiing or U.S. ski team. Once we hit the road, it's it's U.S. skiing. And I think David would agree that uh, we've, as a nation, gotten better at being inclusive of people inside and outside of the team. Uh, but <clears throat> I'm looking forward to hopefully connecting with David here uh, soon because you know we had some big talks while we were in Shushan about um, you know building men's distance skiing and how to do that uh and we're really looking forward to the future and i uh, he's an athlete that we absolutely need um so hope he hope he continues to progress as he has been and i hope the criteria picks him up well i'm, I'm going to talk about age-based criteria in a second but i just want to finish the thread about david here if that's okay and I looked at the at, at your parameters for discretion, and they're pretty. I feel like again, my reading. I'm not a lawyer, but I've looked at the I've looked at your criteria pretty closely for many years now, and it 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 feels to me like he may he could have been discretioned onto the team, and I and I was thinking about. And I remember there was at least one race, and maybe two, where he kind of fell late in the race and popped out of the top thirty. Okay, and I and I wrote this kind of contextually in my question. You know, there are days when skis, and this isn't David alone. We we you know, I think Jesse had some issues in the in the last two iterations of the tour to ski, where it's like, oh, that one day with bad skis pops are out of contention. Okay, so we can make the assumption that there were probably some days for David where, you know, his skis were one or two percent slower than a top thirty or top twenty ski. And that could potentially move him back in the field because he's expending more energy than he probably should to keep pace. Um, that said, and I wrote this to be fair, he probably had races where he couldn't take advantage of his yeah. of his fast skis, right? But those are, you know, I want to be fair to you guys. Um, but that also is like, uh, I think an athlete is probably expecting like every day is going to have the best skis possible. So that said, you know, and maybe there was something I don't, I haven't really drilled down on this eighth points list and whether or not it was funky because the year ended short, but why couldn't you, can you talk a little bit about why he could not have been discretioned onto the team? Yeah, it's, uh, to, because it goes back to a little bit to what I said. Uh, we have to be able to argue that David is on track to be a medalist at world champs or at the Olympics. And we can't argue that it would, we can argue that he is on track to continue to improve. He's on track to, um, get into the top 15 next year, but that at 29 or 30 doesn't merit a B or an A team spot, which now involves $25,000 of funding roughly. If you are, uh, running the world cup full season and all the camps as much as, I want him there and on those teams, uh, we can't argue it. And so it's, uh, David's an incredible role model as the fastest distance skier that we had this last season. And hopefully he's our fastest distance skier this next year and continues to improve. And so what's the message for, you know, juniors, uh, that are disheartened by that? Well, I think the message is that it's it's not easy to make the B team. It's going to take 
exceptional commitment from a pretty young age. Uh, but what might be promising is that our team size beyond this one instance is 23 athletes deep. It's the biggest national team we've ever had. And so if anything, while David's case is in fact heartbreaking, uh, for, for, for him more than anyone, uh, but at the same time, it is the most inclusive national team that we've ever had. Cause I know there's been a lot of chatter. It's like, Oh gosh, like what, you know, when you have arguably the best domestic distance skier, not making the team, that's a rough signal. And it's a rough signal when you look at, and we can talk, we, let's drill down a little bit about It's a rough signal when you start looking at age-based criteria, which I think you guys have you, this is maybe the third iteration of the team where age-based criteria has been used. I think. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, the upside to all this is that an athlete knows before the team is named, it's like, unless discretion is used, yeah, I fell within, you know, here's my year of birth and here's the world rank I was supposed to have. Boom. I'm on the team or I'm not on the team. Um, unless, you know, they're on the world cup and popping a top six or whatever those specific parameters are, or a world junior top 10, you know, for example. So that's obviously good and healthy. It's transparent for the athlete, but it also means that once you're say 20, you know, you're not a U23 anymore and you're a senior, it's the clock is ticking and it's, it's ticking quite fast in particular when you think about, you know, men's distance skiing and people can reflect and be like, Oh my gosh, here's where I need to be on the world cup to, to make the B team or, and those standards should be high. I don't want to make it sound like I'm looking for you guys to soften standard. It's more that the messaging, right? It's like, gosh, what is the point? It sounds like the point is metal potential rather than like having your best distance gear represented on the team. Like, yeah. I mean, I guess that's what I'm seeing as the message and that's, you know, can be hard to digest. That's right. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And it's, uh, you know, David's two years behind the curve. If he were 27 uh, and having the same results, that would that would capture him. And so uh, the message is simply uh, get on it, <laughs> you know, and it's not a message to David. It's a message to anybody that's disheartened by David not being selected to the team. But the other thing is that David is going to be invited to any training camp. Uh, our World Cup selection, as you know, is uh, done by committee. And so he's going to have access to every World Cup, uh, the chance to start them just like any other national team skier does. And opportunities and doors are not closed. Uh, but the bummer is that the funding was missed. Uh, you know, that's one of the big, big things. Plus just being a part of the team, it's, uh, it, it instills confidence when you know that people that you're on the road with are your teammates, but we try and do our best to have those that aren't actually on the team to feel like they're a part of it as well. And that'll be a goal of mine. So, um, you know, just to, uh, you know, kind of tie this up for me, I, I think David can continue to be our best distance skier. And 
I think he's going to see some top 10 results. And when he does see those results, he's going to be in the stadium with the person who's crossing the line in second or third. It's going to be that close. So once he makes that jump, the podium will be in sight. But right now it's a little bit out of sight. Can you talk a little bit about, and again, you know, Scott Patterson's situation, who was a B team member, looks like he'll be a B team member again this year. He, uh, I think, gosh, off the top of my head, I think he was in Ruka, perhaps Lillehammer yep. uh, last year, but then off and the Davos. World Cup. Uh, and Davos, okay. And then raced domestically and had a tough go of it. You know, I'm, I'm sure, I, I'm assuming Scott would not argue with that assessment, like had a tough go of it domestically as well, you know, racing last year and did not kind of, you know, it wasn't reflective of his performances at, say, historically at Homan Colon or at the 2018 Olympics where he skied great. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about Scott's situation and the use of discretion in his case? Because I think, you know, on that last list, he fell out of the, the world ranking parameter. Yeah, he did. And uh, this is an instance where uh, if an athlete uh, struggles with a medical issue, uh, that can be considered in indiscretion. And so I can't really talk about personal medical issues that that's the responsibility of the athlete if they want to. Um, Scott's healthy and fine, but, but there were things that kept him back from skiing well last year. Um, and we felt like that merited a discretionary pick. And it's okay. a, it, it's a, um, yeah. it's a tough one because, uh, you know, you could sit there and argue all day long, like, would it have been a better investment to nominate David via discretion instead of Scott? And, um, yeah, you can have those arguments, but this is what we decided, uh, was, was most fair, uh, to everybody involved. All right. Thanks, Matt. Have a good day. Yeah. You too, Jason. Nice to chat. Thanks for everything you do. Likewise. Bye. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nordic Nation. We would also like to, with permission, provide Matt Wickham's email and phone number if you have any questions or concerns that you would like to address with him. Either way, you can send him an email. His address is matt.wickham at usskiandsnowboard.org. That last part at usskiandsnowboard is all spelled out in lowercase letters. His phone number is 435-640-8543. Thanks for listening.